As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me a new hero of mine. His name is Kiese Lehman, and he wrote what I think is required reading for every, every child in America, starting at the age of, I think, 14 would be an appropriate time. The book is called Heavy. The person behind this book is one of the most special people I've ever met on this podcast, and I can't wait to speak to you. Kiese, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, <laughs> I never thought I'd be here, but I, I'm happy to be talking to you. I I want to first start by saying I wish it had happened sooner. Right. I'm so grateful for all of this that it has happened. And I'll start by saying the following because I think it's important to preface it. We haven't spoken at length at all. But what I can say is this. As a white Jewish kid from Long Island who was born in 1970, I think very close to you, true? Yes. What year were you born? 74. Yeah. Some of the references in Heavy, I nearly died, fell over out <laughs> of my chair from the like remembrance of the 80s um, that we share. Your book is part of my very intensive re-education to clear away the bullshit that I was taught in my school and welcome in the truth. And your book has been a huge part of that. My, I'm on the edge of tears right now. I'm so grateful to you. Your voice in the book, you're addressing your mama from start to finish. You center her as the person to whom you're writing, even though you've said in many interviews, it's not a letter. You're centering her. You're centering your hometown of Mississippi. You're centering the secrets and the blackness. And you've even said in one interview that I loved the wetness, sweat, sex, secrets, it instantly welcomed me in, your book, instantly. So if you're white and you're listening to this and you think, oh, that's not a book for me, I promise you, it's a book for you. <laughs> it's a book for all of us. It took me in. It took me home. And it helped me see and taste and smell the depth of love that you, your grandmama, and your mama shared. All the narratives that course through your family, the, the, the worst shit and the best your book is going to change how I write and how I think. That's that's what's up. That's just the most amazing uh, sort of introduction that I could I could hear. So I appreciate that, and and mostly I'm glad you say that it took you home because yeah, ultimately the book is about the places we stay, right? Whether the yeah. the bodies, the homes, the the towns, the cities, um, but but the home, especially in the rooms, in those homes. So the rooms. 
what's crazy is that as I was reading it, I was picturing the carpeting in my in my childhood room. It's so weird that you just said that. Yeah, those rooms. I mean, <laughs> rooms are majestic, but they they're also almost always haunted. You know what I mean? Yeah. We kind of yeah. don't really unpack what happens in them, um, yeah. and, and and school often doesn't good, doesn't really give us the tools to do that. So we just have to find out how to do that ourselves. So anyway, thank you for for letting it take you home. That's a that's a big deal for me. It's such a pleasure. I would also like to start by saying also to any white listener, this book will give you uh, new eyes and a new mind and a new heart. And if you're afraid of your whiteness, you know, which I, I'm now learning to talk about as like, hey, look at a chair right now, chairness. <laughs> right. <laughs> look at a lamp right now, that's lampness. That's right. Whiteness is not a bad word. If you're afraid of it, reading this book will actually help you look at your own lineage, your own upbringing, your own family secrets, and all the things that were good and bad differently. And uh, it'll help you address the things that you don't want to talk about, I feel, no matter what your color. I know that your mama made you write, and <laughs> my child is pissed because I'm totally going to start making him write this summer for me. <laughs> he's so angry. He's 14, almost 14. Oh. He's pissed off. I'm like, this is the first book he's actually going to read for me, and we're going to do writing practices together around this book. Who taught you to write to that, you know, because this book is addressed to your mama. Where did you get that idea? Well, how did that happen? You know, it's sort of a long story, but the short version is my grandmother didn't read a ton of books, but she reread the Bible. Like, uh, I, I mean, at probably 100 or 200 times. And I don't know, you know, like she, she, she believed that that Bible was written to her. And so as a young kid, like I didn't have a language or anything, um, but I, I always knew that I wanted to create the kind of art that did to people's bodies what the Bible did to my grandmama's bodies. And initially I couldn't find literary art to do that. So it was like musical art, particularly like hip hop, uh, rap music at the time, like really just, you know, sanctified me. I felt like a lot of those human beings were writing to me, even though they weren't, I felt like they were. So and it was a different feeling when I got to school because we were, you know, like as black kids, we were often asked to write ourselves out of our assignments. You know, we couldn't write about the things that brought us joy. We couldn't write in styles that brought us joy. We couldn't really even explore joy. If you can't explore joy in a classroom, you definitely can't explore Tara. So mm. it's just like, I just wanted to create a piece of art that, you know, people could feel was speaking to them and to parts of themselves that they might not acknowledge and yeah. I wanted to I just wanted to do that that hard thing which is to to make people feel like that piece of sort of a tree in their hand is yeah. is, is as valuable as as the heart in their chest and that's that's what I was trying to do mission accomplished Man, thank you straight up W.E.B. Du Bois said and this was pointed out in one of the interviews that I saw I watched a few of them with you he said that black people have a double consciousness and I'm bringing this up because this is something I want my white listener to feel right. the life you live in the white world and the life you live in the black world. And here's what, here's the perfect definition of white privilege. We have never had to do that. Huh. We've never had to do that. That's 
our privilege, an entire level of our nervous system, I feel, is completely free to be creative, do whatever the fuck you want to do, because you don't have to think about managing who you're showing up as in this one context and in this other context. Right. And that is a great understanding that I have gained from reading your book and from watching the interviews with you because you're so articulate in this realm. I really have to thank you for teaching me that inadvertently. What is the consequence? Here's the question, pursuant to heavy. What is the consequence of masking that pain? Because I can see it in your mom. I can see it in your grandmama. And I can see it in so many of the you know the people in your life, the characters in the book. I can see the pain masked coming through as all of these very rich, sad, deep stories and, and arcs and narratives. What do you feel are the consequences of masking that pain? Oh, that's a big question. Um, I mean, the great thing about that question is that it, it should be asked of, 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 you know, if we're just going to be local, it should be asked of every American, you know, what, what, what are the consequences of, of masking, like the rooms in your body? Like, okay, there's a room, you know, there's something in there that you need to go in there and look at, but you know, what are the consequences of just believing that that room doesn't exist? Well, in real life, you know, shit in there can start to stink and the rest of the house can start to stink, you know, if you don't go in there and check and see what's in that room. So, you know, for my grandma, my mom, they, and my mama, they came up in different times. But but one thing was similar was that they were not allowed as black women to fail and, and definitely not to fail publicly, which means that this artificial sort of like baseline of excellence became the goal, but it, it also became the only thing you could really talk about. So when you didn't reach right. that, that artificial like space of excellence, you got to deal with the converse, which is the shame. Mm -hmm. And when you're dealing with that shame, you got to deal with that guilt and that guilt and that shame. Um, I think for all families, but definitely for my family, it, it, it can eat us up and, you know, and we can fall into relationships with money or food or sex or, uh, all kind of things that like unhealthy relationships with those things. I'm not saying those things are unhealthy. So, you know, in that way, it's just like what humans do. You know, you hide the things that really you need to tend to, you know, you, you, they're going to come out. You're going to feel it. Um, but I also just want to say something about what you said earlier about white folks, like having the privilege to not sort of reckon with whiteness. And, and while I believe that is so true, it's also... I think an indictment about educational system, right? Where that's true. If if we want to live in the world that this nation, at least a nation that purports to be land of the free, home of brave, all of these mm -hmm. things, it, it's like we should have taught white children that confronting and reckoning with whiteness is necessary for us to be the nation that it purports to be. Similarly, like with patriarchy, like if we really want to be the nation we purport to be, we have to start teaching uh, young people who identify as boys and, and, you know, eventually men that like, you know, confronting this, this masculine hardness is something that we got to contend with. So it's a privilege, but it, it's also an indictment of the way we were all educated. I think. I have a team, a separate business and I have a team of tens of thousands of people. And I put myself as a white woman in charge of teaching this predominantly white team about all of this. And I've made the comparison to, even though it's not quite the same, it is, and I mean this, 
from my heart as a Jew, I can say this. I've made the comparison to the kids in Germany who during the 50s, late 40s, 50s, 60s, weren't really taught about the Third Reich. That was sort of glossed over in history. And those kids who are our age now, you know, not our age, they're a little older than us, but I've spoken to some of the kids who are a little closer to our age and a little bit older. And they all said the same thing. They all said the same thing. They weren't really taught it until later. Right. And they had to find out for themselves. Yeah. And if we don't take the responsibility for finding out for ourselves, we are contributing to the problem. And God forbid a white person who's who's still not learning. God forbid you happen to fall in love with someone of color. God right. forbid you have a baby of color. Then what? Right. <laughs> then, got, what? The, then what? Then, I got friends. I got friends who have kids of color. It's a very yeah. real thing. And really? they're they're learning. Yeah. And and there's a consequence, right? I mean, that's just the thing about learning is that I think it's taught literarily and cinematically as this sort of clean transformation. But, you know, learning is messy. You know, learning mm-hmm. requires so much revision. And the thing that the thing that, you know, this is tied to the question you asked about my mom and my grandmama, the mm. thing that learning really requires is failure, right? You have right. to put forth a theory or, or something that that is wrong in order to go back and revise it. And so, you know, we, we're just not in this country, like we sort of like cherish the winners and, you know, we, we don't really think about like the, the cost of winning and, and losing. That's what I think at least, you know what I'm saying? Like, so I just want to write a book that um, brought a lot of that to life and, and heavy was, was an attempt to, uh, to really just look at the cost of, of someone who, for all intents and purposes, like, you know, I look like a winner on paper. You know what I'm saying? I, I grew up in Mississippi. We didn't have much money. My mama didn't have much money at all. I became a college professor. I became a writer. And so, yeah, okay, by American standards, that's success. But the interiority, I think, no. is the most important thing. And if you and if you neglect that, as we are taught to do, you know, you ride. Yeah. And you ride other people. You help other people ride. And, and, yeah. and it's you know, mine is specific to me, mine is specific to a black Southern context, but that's a human context. You know, you yeah. don't do what you shit, you're going to ride and you're going to hurt other people. What's interesting, too, is that the issues that you were facing, you know, there's your mom loving, accomplished, makes you right on fucking Reagan's claim that the brunt of a lawbreaker's right. crime falls on him and not society, makes yeah. you right on Jim Crow. Makes you write on all the strategies used by black elected officials in Mississippi. All these things that she made you write about. So brilliant. Like she made you who you are. And then at the same time, and she's still alive. So I say this with the most respect. You know, I had issues with my dad. He's still alive. All the respect in the world. But she also was super abusive to you and almost like terrorizing you in certain moments because she herself was being abused and terrorized. How? on earth like I want to be brought to the moment where she read the book and you and she sat down and somehow this got reconciled I'm dying to hear about this oh man well again uh because I read a lot and watch a lot of film I want to I want to cry that moment but you know there were there have been lots of moments and my mom I had to interview my mom a lot to write this book and of course, right. during the interview process, she didn't want me to say some of the stuff that was going to go in it. So I took out a lot of what she didn't want. 
But at mm-hmm. the end, you know, when it, when it was kind of drafted and and I, and I showed it to her, uh, you know, she says it made her stomach hurt. Um, mm-hmm. And the thing that she wanted me to understand was that loving me as a child was not hard. You know, she's like, <sighs> I made it hard because I kept so many secrets from you. But the thing is, you you know, you think you're keeping secrets from your child, but especially if it's just you and your child, like your child can see. And conversely, I kept a lot of secrets from her that I thought she didn't see, but she saw. So, uh, so, so when the book came out, you know, we talked primarily about addiction, about gambling addiction. We talked about food. Um, we talked about lying, and and I told her that the thing about being her is that she's brilliant and she's helped so many people in my state, but she also has a son and a mother who she never ever has to lie to about anything because we're always going to love her. Do you know what I'm saying? Like my mom totally. has, has I, I'm not a parent, but I think parents tend to hurt children. Parents do a lot to children. They help children. They, 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 they hold children. They give them wings. She just, you know, she did not have to ever lie to me because mm-hmm. I don't love her. Like, uh, I'm, and, and I'm always going to forgive my mama. Um, mm-hmm. I'm gonna try to take care of myself now. You know, what I mean, I have I've learned some coping skills. Like, if you know, sometimes if I feel like she might be pulling me into the deep end, I I, I feel I found some coping skills to kind of be there for her without drowning too. But you know, human beings drown. So so there wasn't just like this one moment where Mom was like, "He," you know, that's what the book is doing. I'm playing with the with the notion of like deliverance. Like, okay, we had the quick conversation. It's all good. Okay, you wrote the book. Now it's all good. You know, we still have to deal with each other at the end of the day. And yeah. and right now we're in a wonderful space. You know, like she is. We're talking every day about addiction. We're talking every day about joy. We're we're remembering not just the sorrowful things, but we're remembering things that other other rooms that were actually full of joy that we didn't think. You know, we were punishing ourselves because we were, you know, addicted to gambling or whatever. And sometimes when you punish yourself and you feel shame and guilt, you have access to joy that you push away. And right. so, you know, lately we've just been, we've been talking more about like really joyful, funny things. And um, so we're in a good place today. Now tomorrow it could be different, but today we are. Right. It's so beautiful. There are a couple of details that I pulled out of the book, the way that you, there was one time where you were in the car to just pick you up. And she, I think she had, she had just been beaten by Malachi and, and you put your hand under her knee when she was sad, like she did for you. Yeah. I wept for an hour, an hour. And I, it made me think of all the parents. I happen to have people in my life who've taught me that if I screw up, touch my kid, yell at my kid, whatever it is, touch my kid a handful of times in his life. Right. And every time, though, I'm taught to just get in there and say in every word that I can use, I'm sorry for X, Y, Z, right away and repattern the the shame from it. There's actually studies done on this. Repattern the shame and immediately turn all of the synaptic connections in the brain back to creativity and away from adrenaline, you know, fight or flight, all that. Super interesting stuff. But... Wow. When I read this, I fucking died. I just could not, I couldn't stop crying for a very, very long time. And I realized that this was the, one of the reasons for this book, why it should be required reading for all American kids 
and I think parents too, is that we need to see and feel at close range what it feels like to be a child. Forget the color for a second. A child of a mother who has just been beaten, who is also beating the child who, for whom the child cannot help but give all of his love. It is the most important thing to see because it would stop a lot of people from hurting their kids. I think it would. I think it would. I mean, that that was one hope. You know, I don't I don't want to write didactic art, but but one hope was that parents would just be a bit more cognizant of of the importance of tender touch. And all of our parents are going to get beat down. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, you know, maybe not beat down but from a partner, but beat down from something in this in this Mm -hmm. world. world, But, But there's ways to deal with that that don't entail like sort of trying to destroy your children. And, I th- and and the most important thing is I want to say is I just think there's a lot of ways to do that. I think their parents, you know, from teaching and teaching young children, I know, I know kids who were never ever hit by their parents, but who were brutalized psychologically, brutalized emotionally, brutalized spiritually from parents who did not deal with their own brutalization. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I say that because I just, I think sometimes because I talk in that book, um, I mean, I'm also talking about emotional abuse, but because I write about physical abuse, I think people sometimes don't think about the ways that we all harm people, especially um, emotionally, psychologically, uh, spiritually too. Do you know? And and um, totally. I don't have children for a lot of reasons, but one because I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I just don't want to hurt anybody, and I definitely don't want to hurt my kids. But my friends are like, "Fam, that's just part of being a human." You know, human human beings hurt people, but. I just think we can be better at tender touch. And when we, as you just said, if we do hurt folks and we know we should not have, be they mm-hmm. children, be they grand grandparents, be they a stranger, I think we have to like think about what reparation means. Like what does it mean to repair that damage done? And that's something we're not good at in this country, particularly when we think about black and white folks. You know, we're not good at admitting the harm done and we're definitely not good at attempting to repair it can't repair anything that you don't think is, is, is wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. As I say, this just flashed across my screen that Trump shut down any hope of taking the Confederate statues or flags off of the army bases. Fucking asshole. Of course he did. I can't even stand it. And all of the, the officials were actually open. They had expressed openness to it and he shut it down. Yeah, we gotta get him out of office. I think the the, cra- the the thing about Trump is that I always just have to keep reminding myself that is, again, like as singular as he is, and he is a singular kind of evil, right? Mm. There's mm. a part of this country that made that 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 emboldened him with 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 power. Do you know? Mm. And, and and I think mm. it's harder. I think it's easy to get on MSNBC and easy to get on CNN and talk about the shit he does because he is a he's a he's a singular kind of evil that I've never seen. I'm gonna be honest mm. with you. But but that dude would be impotent were there not tens and tens and tens and tens of millions of people who who actually think he's not being brutal enough. And 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 the, and and the thing that I think white folks need to deal with is that why do the majority of white voters in the con- in this country vote for that man and not not just oh because he's Republican? Okay, well why do the majority of white people in this country support? a kind of singular evil entity. And that's a yeah. question that like white folks have to answer. 
because I don't know any black people who voted for Trump or support Trump. I don't like I personally don't. But every white person I know knows somebody who does familiarly, you know, relate uh, uh, a friend or friend of a friend. And and I just think former friends, former friends, right? (laughs) Really get to that. You know what I'm saying? Like we're going to be we're going to be in a we're going to be in a heavy place as as a nation. Yes, because it's not just that it's not just him. He's a he's a mascot and he is a he's an evil mascot. But like who who who's coming to the pep rallies and how did like American churches, American schools and American families create Americans who would support someone who has like the ultimate appetite for suffering? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like when his poll numbers slip, he tries to do things that are more cruel to get more Americans, quote unquote, in his camp. That that says something about us. But I really think it says something about white folk. And I'm not sure what. All I know is that I have friends, capable, beautiful, intelligent women friends who are openly uh, supporting him and wow. all of his theories. Wow. Oh, yeah. you. Wow. You know, this is one of the most confusing aspects of it is not, it's not how to face my whiteness because all I have to do to get that straight is educate myself. That's all I have to do. That's not confusing. I'm not afraid of that. Sure, I'm sure I'll be clumsy at some point. I'm sure I'm going to fuck it up as a woman in wellness and white. I'm sure I'm going to screw it up, but I'm not scared because all I have to do is learn. What I am scared of is the women in wellness, who are white, who are not doing this work, who are actually supporting the complete opposite side. I actually saw somebody who had a hashtag, a beautiful white woman friend of mine that said, blue lives matter. And I fucking died. I fucking died. I started crying right there on the spot. That's tough. Yeah. It knocked the wind out of my body. That's tough, man. This is not what we are talking about. This is not the conversation we are having right now or ever, really. I'm not, and I'm not debating there. I know police officers. I know people who are doing the job who are doing it right. Right. I mean, tons of stories of my, I just had a a talk with my friend who founded Commune. He was on the, uh, walking to a protest with his three kids. He's white and he comes across a black cop and the exchange they had, wordless, was one of the most beautiful he's had in his life. The long, slow nod that the black cop gave him when he smiled, that full of love and full of meaning and full of recognition and acknowledgement. What the fuck are we talking about when we talk about the fact that anything is going right with regards to the police right now? There's nothing going right. There has to be a change. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I I wonder about I I mean I agree obviously like you know I I I'm someone who doesn't really believe in guns and I don't believe in prisons and but I but I do think if we're going to talk about what people are saying about defund or disband police I I just think that conversation has to be had in tandem with education, education reallocation yeah, and you know, economic, uh, you know, wealth inequality. It's like so. Anyway, I just think to deal with one without dealing with those, and I think I think we have to take. You know, I, I think people who I know who are on the front lines would be like, yeah, well, we're talking about police now, right. but I'm just saying in, in general, you know, a conversation about the way, you know, for example, 
like I've been I've been handcuffed in my life by police like what eight times. I've had <laughs> guns to my head by police four times. Mm-hmm. I don't drink, you know what I'm saying? I don't steal shit other than I stole a book from a library and took it back. Um, hmm. oh. I, I don't, I, you know, I didn't grow up selling weed. I didn't grow up doing weed and, and police have put guns to my head eight different wow. times. So, so that's a conversation, but I just don't think we can talk about that conversation adequately without talking about the ways that those police were also trained as students, you know, as human beings, students. And so educationally, and also in terms of religion, because the thing is a lot of these cops who are doing this call themselves Christian. So it's just like, I just think there are a lot of just overlapping things that we got to really get to the root of if we want to yeah. be, if we want to be free. And that's the question. Like, do we want to be free? Like free, it's, you know, being unfree for a long time, just like any sort of pattern, it you know, becomes normalized. So like, do we yeah. want to be free? Do we want to yeah. share? Do we really want to swim in joy? I don't, I, I think a lot of us don't, even though we would say we do, you know what I mean? Well, there's a familiarity to oppression there's a familiarity and of all kinds I'm, I'm not just staying with this conversation but there's there's a familiarity to any kind of oppression in any kind of family right you know you know i know some of the, you know too some wealthy white families where there's oppression like i've never seen anything before and everybody comes out of there damaged as fuck like yeah. super damaged super damaged and that is what's familiar. So then they go and pick the partner like that, or they pick the Absolutely. friends like that. Yep. So there's yep. that bit. I'm just amazed at how much I didn't know and thankful for what I'm finally coming to know. I'm thankful too. You know, I, I think committing to, to, to be a, a active student is, is a revolutionary act for an American. Yep. Yeah. You know, I think I think That's we're right. talking our education should should end um, after twelfth or after we graduate or after we get a PhD and nah, you know, mm-hmm. education mm-hmm. revision has to go on until we die. Yeah. Tell me when you when you finally got a handle the moment that you got a handle on the fact that you had a gambling problem. I just want to look at that for a second. I myself am sober for. Let's see, more than five and a half years now. I was a total pothead. Oh my God, thank you. I was the worst kind of pothead. If you ever did smoke weed and you found me when I was smoking weed, we would have had a very good time. That's funny. I know. Maybe it's not funny. I'm sorry. It's like weed. It is funny. No, it has to be. You have to make it funny. Weed is always the one you're supposed to laugh at, right? That's just like a laugh because you said weed, but no, like, congratulations for. For, for confronting something that I, 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 I assume was not healthy for you. Um, no, it wasn't. It was the thing that I thought I needed every day, like to be functional and funny and cool. Yeah. Yeah. But I want to know about your gambling because I've never had a gambling issue and I'm very, very curious to hear what the parallels are. How did you figure it out? When did you acknowledge it? And how did you like surmount it, walk around it? Well, you know, when I've, I've been going to casinos my entire life, as a young person, um, even when I was like, I start the book off talking about I'm like, you know, 11 or 12 or something like that. And I'm in Vegas. Yeah. And I'm, not, I'm too young to be in a casino, but I'm a big yes. boy. So, yes. you know, the cops don't don't think that I'm a child. And so I, I think, you know, so between the ages of like eight and probably 30, I'd gone in and out of casinos with my family because my, my family just loves to gamble. But, you know, around the time I was 31 or 32, 
I'd run my body into the ground from exercise. I mean, I was addicted to exercise. That was my biggest addiction. And it was, and, and, and the problem was I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. So, you know, got my body sped down to like 3% and everybody was, you know, a lot of people were just saying, you look so good and blah, 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 blah. And then when I broke my my body, my, you know, my, my joints, my joints broke and, and I couldn't run. And then the only thing that could give me the, the same sort of high that I got from from running my body into the ground was gambling, you know, like, and at first I was just like, it's my money. I've, you know, I didn't come from money. I've saved this money up. I don't splurge on anything except like, you know, music sometimes and books, but I get books free now. And so I'm like, I'm just gonna like go out and just go to the casino and just see what happens. And you know, it's like the worst thing in the world that can happen. You go to the casino yeah. one day and you fucking win. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and then it was just like ever since that day, I mean, I just I just kept coming back. But you know, after a while, my my interior life was was shambles. My relationship was fucking horrid. And then mm. you start going to the casino, not even to win, but just to get the feeling of of competing, even though you're gonna lose, right? You're gonna lose. Like you cannot. Like that's the thing about casinos—you can't beat them in the long run. No. You know what I mean? Like it's and and every year that you get deeper and deeper and deeper, you keep thinking, well, man, maybe one day I'll win that ten million. Maybe one day I'll win that fifteen million. But like for most people who go to a casino a lot, it doesn't matter if you win fifteen million because you're gonna get back fifteen million plus one. You know what right. I'm saying? And right. so for me, it was just like I I spent all my savings, uh, I hmm. I sold my truck. Uh, I started getting these payday loans mm. and I was just, I was embarrassed. I was shame. I didn't, you know, I was, I'm also like gender dynamics. My family are weird. Like I was, I'm the youngest, but I was also supposedly the man of the house. So I needed to send money to my, to my, to my mom, to my auntie, to my grandmama. So I would still make sure I sent them a little bit of money. But when I got to the point where I didn't have anything, like every, every work check I got was gone. You know, it was, I was, I'd be at the casino I get paid at 12 a.m. by one o'clock in the morning. I spent all of that. Do you know what I mean? Mm, so mm. I just had to talk. Mm-hmm. So for me, I didn't go to Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, I talked. I wrote about it. I tried to talk to my parents about it because they both were obviously dealing with gambling issues. And real talk, like heavy is what brought me out of it. Like I had to write mm-hmm. that book to look it in the face and also to, to not isolate it, to also just see like a pattern of what led to it. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like heavy is about a lot of other things other than gambling, but yeah. it definitely is about about gambling, literally and metaphorically. And so, you know, when you don't have any money and you and you don't have any children and you gambled your car away and you gambled your your, you know, with a place where you stay, you don't you can't live there anymore. But on the surface, you know, you're a successful writer, like there's a problem. There's a big yeah. problem. You know, and, and I needed to do what my mama taught me, which is to use my art to try to heal myself. And that's what I did. Like, that's why mm-hmm. Somebody Heavy is like, you know, it's it's a it's a heavy book and it's, you know, it's not afraid of despair. But it's also like it relishes in the importance of like art making and like our healing. You know what I'm saying? Like creating yeah. a book was how I got out of not just gambling, but but not thinking that I was worth having anything. And that's what my shit was. Like, I didn't think, I didn't think I was, cause I was in a relationship that was absolutely terrible. And it was terrible because I was a fucking like deceptive ass liar. I mm. that relationship was, you know, I felt shame, I felt guilt. And then yeah. I just thought like, I can just punish myself by giving everything away. 
And then, you know, you come to a point where you're like, fuck, yo, like, I'm at that point now where most people who are gambling addicts start stealing. You know what I'm saying? Like, to, yeah. and I don't yeah. want to do that. Like, I don't want to, I'm not, a, that's not, that's not my thing. I'm not trying to steal from people or deceive people to get money to, so anyway, I just needed to use the art and, and, and try to get myself out of that addiction through that art by actually confronting it and talking about what came before and what could come after it. And try to have hard conversations with my mother about it, which that that was really hard. That was that was yeah. that was hard. That was very hard. You know, I hope sometimes your mama listens to these things because she needs to know that despite the mistakes that were made, despite the hands that she raised, she did something for you that translated into a gift to millions of people in time, like going forward many generations, this book that she ended up being the, she was the the impulse. She right. was the catalyst in a way. She, the, the fact that this book is going to go out to so many different millions of people in time, she gave a huge gift with all the mistakes that she made, huge gift that, that wipes them out, I feel. Absolutely. No question. I mean, that's what, that's what I try to, that's what I want the that's what I want the reader to understand is that if, yep. if you if you appreciate this this piece of art you're holding in your hands, you, you have to appreciate the person who was really most responsible for it. And the people who were most responsible for that book are that's my right. mama and my grandmama. You know what I mean? That woman. Yo, your grandmama is so funny. I wish I could meet her. She's a real deal, fam. She's a good, oh. she's an incredible human being. She's just, she's just so fucking good at love. She's just great yes. at love, you know. Yes. And and I'm not, I mean, not now, now, you know, when you cross her, she will, she will get you. <laughs> she will get you. She, you know, I said I don't believe in guns in prison, but my grandmama believes in both. She'll get you if you cross her, but you got to cross right. her a few times. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You gotta. Yeah. You have to be disrespect her and humiliate her a few times, but but when you when she's unlike me, you know, I can forgive anybody. But my grandmama, nah, nah. But she's she's just so good at love. She's so tender. I've never heard her say a derogatory thing about any any like maligned group of people. You know, be mm-hmm. queer, Latinx, like nothing. You know, mm-hmm. she had a lot to say about white folks who have done dirty, who have not done right by her. As she should. But so same people, you know, she would invite in her house. She would ask them what they want. You know, are you good? You know what I'm saying? So she yeah. she's a model of love that I, I want to embody. But my mama is, she encouraged a kind of artful rigor that, that made heavy possible. There's no question about that. You know, the word heavy in, uh, so I've taught yoga for almost 30 years now. The word heavy wow. is, the, is the root of the word guru. And it means the one who has the most weight. Whoa. Gravitational. You know what I mean? Gravitationally, the one who really holds holds the space. Wow. Right? Wow. Yeah. I should have that before I wrote the book. That's my grandma. She that's what she is. That's what I was just gonna say. That's her. That's her. That's her. And it's so interesting because she said she said this. I was interviewing her and she was like, you know. Every, you know, just heavy enough. And I was like, what is, that, that phrase just stuck with me. And I'm like, heavy enough for what? And she's just like, I think she said something like heavy enough to like not fly away or something, just heavy enough. And so like the idea of being heavy enough is just something I also wanted to play with in that book. That's what made me think of it when I read that line. Yeah. Man, that she, that she was talking about, it felt to me like she was talking about that, like heavy enough 
It's what she is, heavy enough to hold right. all of these fucking dirty right. truths. That's right. All that's at once inside of this body and still love. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's it. That's it. I want to thank Danny Shapiro for introducing me to you. She sent me the other day out of pretty much nowhere. She and I are pretty close. But out of nowhere, she sent me the episodes that you had done with her. And I was just like, oh, what? Oh, man. You know what's interesting about that? Y- y'all should have heard the first version because we. We were supposed. We recorded a version earlier the day before, and uh, and then her her software whatever didn't record. Um, Mm. But that one was that one was probably the most intense interview I've ever done. But then the next day, it was a it was a lot lighter compared to the first day. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I could feel that there was something that we like we didn't even scratch the surface, and I was instantly drawn. Right. Like I wanted to know who you were. I got the book. I started to read it. This is like four days ago. Oh, <laughs> I pounded. I pounded the book, <laughs> dude. No, I pounded the book. It's the one that you were. I think it's episode thirty-eight. She just recorded it during the quarantine. I guess that may have been a couple months back now. Yeah, no, no. She she recorded it. We recorded it the other. We recorded it the day before it came out. Oh, okay. So then it's recent. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. We're, yeah. So that's what's up. I can't even thank you enough for taking the time today to to be with me and talk to me and listen to me and teach me. I'm so grateful beyond for your art. I'm so grateful too that that you have committed your life to a practice of wellness and and helping other people get better. Um and and using and it sounds like you're using yourself as as a as a vessel and as a model and um I just think we can be better. We can be braver. We can be more courageous. Yeah. Um, and, and we will. And we yeah. will. Can I have permission to call you to do a part two? Sure. <laughs> Just let me know. Yeah, I will. I feel like I feel like in a few months from now, when I know more, I want to read your other two books, and then I think I'll be equipped to talk to you again and see what we can learn from each other. Yeah, and good luck with those writing exercises with your son. I hope that I hope mm. you don't get too mad. At it. <laughs> I hope Dude, he's so mad. angry. I'm going to read to you though the first thing that I wrote after reading your book. Okay. I woke up early uh, this morning and I started what will eventually be a spoken word, and it was because of your book that I wrote this. And it's only three paragraphs, but it's the very beginning of what I think is going to be beautiful. Okay, it starts like this: When I was little. I remember wishing I had black skin like Tanya Haskins. Tanya. It was like she sang her name every time she said it. She was the epitome of beauty for me. She had bands of every color all over her perfectly braided hair. It was her eyelashes. It was her quiet, dignified look. When she smiled, you could feel that she cared. She cared deeply. She cared about everything. She folded her hands just so. She wrote in this mellifluous cursive that made me swoon. She had eyes that lit up the entire classroom. She sat too far away from me. Wow. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. That's the beginning. That last Tanya. line. Ooh. She sat too far away from me. That's interesting. Yeah. So she, because you wanted to be closer to her, it's not like you sat too far away from her. She sat too far away from you. 
the teacher just placed us, I don't know. Yeah. And yeah. all I knew was that she was the prettiest girl in the room. I and that. I mean, I'm, I'm straight. I, I live for women, but I'm straight. I, I never wasn't. Right. But I just wanted to be closer to her. She felt like she knew. I felt like she had information that I wanted, like right. of, of how to be how to be a person in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm sure she did. And she probably had. And she did. A whole lot of mystery in there, too. Right. Like, that's right. That's, that's right. right. That's it. Interiority. Thank you so much for today. Thank you for today. Thank you for that. And I'm sending you so much love and we'll talk again. All right, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and 5 free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.